Um, hey, we are starting a new sermon series today. Um, we've been going through uh, this series on, uh, well, they found them. Let's just, come on, guys. <laughs> come on, come on. Well, come on up. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for um, this service today. We thank you for the chance to come and be together. We ask God now that you take these gifts which we uh, present to you, and Lord, that you would, uh, you would multiply them for your kingdom's sake. And we pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, thank you guys. Um, while they are moving through uh, the congregation, I'll share with you just a little bit. Um, we've been working through this series called Potential, and I'll talk to you a little bit more about where that ended up coming from and why we ended up on that. And today, starting a new series called God at Work, we've over, I don't know if y'all can remember back this far, but back about Mother's Day, I think it was, we started working through the life of David through 1 Samuel. And uh, we pretty much haven't exhausted 1 Samuel, but have gotten as far as I wanted to get with it. And so we're going to pick back up with 2 Samuel a little bit later, probably after the first of the year, to look at King David when he becomes king, his anointed king, that whole second half of his life. Um, but for now, we're going to move on to a new series called God at work. And so the idea of this is to think about, well, how does God, what does God at work look like, and how can we prepare for, how can we be a part of God at work among us? Um, and so that's where we're going. Our text for today is Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 14 through 21. And as is our custom here, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. I hadn't said this in a little while, so maybe it's appropriate for me to say now, is that we stand each week to be reminded that this is where truth comes from. I can't tell you how many times I've run into people with all kinds of points of view over the last couple of weeks in my academic circles, and I keep reminding them that, friends, what you're saying are your opinions. Nobody cares about your opinion. It won't go into eternity with you. The only opinion that matters is what God thinks, and he wrote it down. And so we stand each week to be reminded of that. Mark chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 14 through 21. This is Jesus calling the first of the disciples. Here we go. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so let's just kind of walk through these verses together. Again, this is the story of Jesus calling the first disciples. This may be a story that you remember going way back to VBS. This is probably a story that you remember going way back to your years as a little kid in Sunday school because there's this boat and these fish that get caught, and it's all exciting. So let's just kind of walk through this, maybe fresh and new for the first time this morning as we see it. Let's look at verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Verse 15 says, the time... Here's what he was saying. The time is fulfilled for the kingdom of God is at hand. Hadn't come yet. God's kingdom hasn't come, but it is at hand. And so Jesus declared, just as John had declared, repent and believe in the gospel. That is, believe in this good news that I'm here to tell you, that God's kingdom is at hand. 
Okay, let's take a look at our map real quick. You can see where Jesus has been and where he is right now. If you look to the uh, west, or I'm sorry, east of Jerusalem, if you can find Jerusalem, it's there at the northern tip of the Dead Sea. And if you go east to the Jordan River, Jesus has just been baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, somewhere right out there in the wilderness alongside the Jordan River. That's where Jesus was baptized. And now he's traveled from there. He's beginning his public ministry back up to the Sea of Galilee, in which gets its name from the region of Galilee. You can see Galilee up there. So that's where Jesus is at. He's alongside the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he's beginning his public ministry. But the point that I want you to notice that right here is that Jesus doesn't have any disciples yet. He's a one-man show. There's nobody else following him around. It's just Jesus going around preaching and teaching and healing people here at the outset of his ministry. No disciples yet. Verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. Simon is Simon Peter of the Gospels. And Andrew was his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were both fishermen. So they were doing what fishermen do. They're out there. They're small business owners. They have their own boat. Not a fleet, but they have their own boat. Um, I don't know what it said on the side. Maybe my grandfather used to be a waterman in his boat. He was a pastor. And on his boat, his boat was called Amen. So I don't know what their boat was called, but maybe they had some lettering on the side of that. But anyhow, they're out there with their boat, and they're casting their net because they're fishermen. Verse 17, follow me, Jesus said to them, and I will make you fishers of men. And then the scripture records something that's very remarkable. That is their response to Jesus calling them to follow him into ministry, for them to follow him to become some of their disciples. And here's their response. Very remarkable. Verse 18, it says that when Jesus asked them this, it says, immediately they left their nets and they followed after him. That is without any hesitation, without any pause, without any, hey, Jesus, I got to put the boat up for sale. I got these nets. They're all sitting here in the water. I don't just want to leave this stuff setting here. Jesus, I've got, I got to put in my two weeks notice. I got to call my parents. I need to check with them and see if this is a wise decision. I need to go settle up any bank accounts, any debts that I have. There was none of that. Certainly, that was a part of their life. Certainly, there was a whole lot more complicated uh, going on than just dropping your nets and leaving everything and following after Jesus. I mean, dude, does that not strike you as odd? Does that not strike you as somewhat strange, maybe even irresponsible of Peter and Andrew to just leave behind their small business and their family that probably counted on that income to just walk away from it? And yet that's the response that the scriptures record. We see the same sort of response happen again right on the same shoreline. Look at verse 19. It says, going a little further down the shoreline, Jesus saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. These guys were in the boat, and it says they were mending their nets. Hang on to that little detail. We'll come back to it here in just a little bit. But James and John, brothers, they're the sons of Zebedee. We learn in the next verse that their father Zebedee was there at the boat with them and that they had a bunch of hired hands. Look at verse 20. It says, immediately Jesus called them, and they left their dad in the boat, Zebedee, with the hired servants, and they followed Jesus too. Jesus just walks up and he says, hey guys, how about y'all come with me? Sure, right? Drop it all, leave it all behind. I mean, you think their dad would be standing there behind him with some sort of objection, but he doesn't. He's silent. The scriptures don't record his response. Zebedee's, for all we know, just good with it as well, saying, go ahead, guys. Yeah, that sounds like a great deal. This guy just shows up. You never met him before, right? Never seen him perform any miracles. Sure, go with him. 
Leave the family business. Leave me here holding the bag, right? And so the idea here is, though, that and the scriptures record that they went immediately. There was no argument. There was no dialogue back and forth. Well, hey, James, what do you think we ought to do? Well, I mean, I see Peter and John, or Peter and Andrew, they followed him, so maybe we ought to go with them. I mean, there was none of that. It was just this immediate, instinctual, absolutely, you call me, I want to go. I, here, I'm ready, drop everything. Well, the question that I have to ask is what was so compelling? about Jesus in an instant. I mean, they just met him that made these guys drop everything and go with him. Well, the answer to that comes over in Luke chapter 5. See, there's other places in the Gospels that record this same story, but they give us a few more details. They help round out the picture of this calling of these first disciples. Look over at Luke chapter 5 with me, beginning at verse 1. Again, this is another account of Jesus calling the first disciples. It says, verse 1, Luke chapter 5, On one occasion, when the crowd was pressing in to hear the word of God, Jesus happened to be standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, the lake of Gennesaret is just a term that they would have used back then in that day, kind of like we instead of referring to Atlanta as Atlanta, we'd refer to as the ATL. Uh, places get different kinds of names. And so the Sea of Galilee was also referred to as the lake of Gennesaret. It had some Roman roots and stuff like that, why they renamed it. But nevertheless, it's the same lake. Verse 2. Jesus saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen weren't in them because they were washing their nets. So Jesus mojied over, got in one of the boats belonging to Simon Peter, and he asked him to put out a little ways from land. And Jesus sat down and taught the people from the boat. So gather this scene here. There's hundreds of people, maybe even more than that, that have been wanting to hear what Jesus has to say. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. Perhaps he's been healing some of the people. And so he's got this big crowd of people that want to hear. This is not 10 people. This is not 25 people. This is enough people that Jesus is up against the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he feels like he needs to get in a boat to put a little bit of buffer between him and all these people so that everybody can hear him, and they're not just all hovered in and crowded around him. So hundreds of people standing on the shoreline wanting to hear what Jesus says. He walks up to the shoreline, looks, there's this guy named Simon Peter there. He's got Peter etched into the boat. Maybe it says amen. I don't know. But in any case, he gets in the boat, says, hey, look, I want to go out just a little ways from shore, 10 feet, 20 feet, maybe 10 yards, who knows, far enough that he, Jesus could get that little buffer and everybody could hear him, but not so far that people couldn't hear him. And so he gets in this boat. Simon says, sure, I'll take you out there. You can hear what these people have to say. And so Simon hears the sermon that Jesus preaches. You say, ah, well, that's why Simon dropped everything and followed after Jesus, because he just heard this awesome sermon. I mean, Jesus could probably really preach, couldn't he? Right? Um, and so that really wasn't it, though, because it says, if you look at the scriptures, uh, verse 4, it says when he had finished, I'm sorry, go back to verse 3, um, Jesus sat down to talk to people from the boat. And I just lost my place. But anyway, um, let's just go to verse 4. That's not the answer that he heard a really good sermon. Look at verse 4. It says, when he had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon Peter, here we go, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Verse 5, look at Peter's response, or Simon Peter's response. Simon answered, Master, we've worked, we've toiled all night long, haven't caught a thing. Simon is reluctant. Jesus asks him in just a little while to leave everything. Simon says, let's go. A few moments before, Jesus says, let's go fishing. Peter says, ah, been out there all night. What changed? What changed? He just heard this great sermon. But even with the great sermon, he's still reluctant even to go fishing. And Peter's been out there all night long. He's been working all night. He's had his nets down. He's been trying to catch fish, hadn't had any luck. Jesus wants to go fishing. Okay, oh, fine. We'll entertain you. 
Right? He did preach a good sermon. And so he decides that, okay, we'll go out, we'll, we'll put out the sea. Verse 6. So they go out, they drop down their nets, and all of a sudden these nets come to life, right? It says they enclose such a large number of fish that there's this massive school of fish out there on the Sea of Galilee, so many that their nets were starting to break. Now, friends, I just want to point out to the fact that Paul, or Simon Peter had never seen fish in this quantity before. Say, Gordon, how do you know it? Because he didn't have nets that were prepared for this kind of a catch. And we're going to see in just a little while, he didn't have a boat big enough for this kind of a catch. This was something he had never seen. This was something he had never heard of any other fishermen, some tall tales. This was way beyond anything he ever fathomed could be possible, the number of fish that they caught. Look at verse 7. It says, so they signaled to their buddies on shore, James, John, Zebedee, come on over here. Help us. We got all these fish in this net. I mean, they're just things that, I mean, they're used to throwing out their nets, catching like one or five, or maybe they got on a school and caught 20, right? And these little flimsy nets, and they're used to pulling that in. Maybe they, on a really great day, and everything was going great, and they caught 50, right, in a single cast. But they've never seen numbers like this before. So much that they, I mean, if it was just 50, don't, why would he need some other guys to come out and help him? carry the 50 fish into shore, right? We're talking hundreds. We're talking perhaps thousands of fish, thousands of pounds of fish, and his little wooden boat that says amen. Right? I mean, this, this, how can this possibly be? He's seeing something he's never seen before. So he calls the other guys out in the partner boat. They came and they filled up, it says, both boats. Again, he's never seen a catch like this before. He doesn't have the facilities. He doesn't have the equipment to handle something like this. Nobody even fathomed that this was possible. And so they get all these fish, and they're putting them in their boat, and they start out ankle deep. And the more they pull into the boat, they get knee deep. And before you know it, these fish are filled all the way up to the gunnels of the boat. And the boat, because the cargo is so heavy, starts to push down into the volume of the water. And it begins to come to a point where the water's starting to lick up across the gunnels of the, of the boat. And they're thinking to themselves, we can't get any more fish in the boat. We're going to get swamped. And so they begin to head back towards shore. Totally miraculous. Nobody caught this much fish in a year. And here we are with all these fish in our boat. And finally, they get back to shore, and they're all looking around in the mayhem, right, of this, trying to get these fish on shore, trying to sort all this out. And in the commotion and in the euphoria and the high fives and the people yelling and screaming and excited about this catch that they just got, Peter looks over at Jesus with his eyes still wide open and wild and his heart still racing and beating. And Jesus says, come and follow me. Peter drops everything and he follows after Jesus. And then Jesus, record, the scriptures record, he walked down the shoreline just a little ways where the guys had begun mending their nets. Why? Because all those fish, right, had broken their nets apart as they were trying to haul them into their boat. And he says, James and John, follow me. And without 
hesitation, and I would add the blessing of their father, Zebedee. Yes, go, go, go. We're going to be fine. We got, a, we got three years worth income that we just pulled in, boys. Jesus took care of it all. It's good. We're fine. You go. Okay, well, that's our text for today. And so that means it's time for us to shift gears and ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, that's a pretty dramatic story, pretty neat how all that worked out. But I mean, I, I've watched Discovery Channel before, and I've seen people haul in those big old fish, you know, fisheries out there in Alaska. But I mean, if unless I work at a cannery in Alaska, what difference does any of this make to my life? What difference does this make to me? Really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. You know, I had a buddy in college who was fanatical. I mean, he was a fanatic about a daily quiet time. He would do anything. Like, he literally, if he hadn't prayed that day, he had a, a personal rule. That if I have not prayed and had my quiet time with the Lord, I will not eat until that happens. And he didn't. I can remember times when he skipped dinner because he hadn't had his quiet time, wasn't feeling up to it or whatever it was, but he was fanatical about making sure he took time to read his Bible and pray and seek after God. But even in all of his fanaticism, even in being the, you know, as much as he was into it and disciplined around it, I watched him go through dry spiritual seasons. Times when it just, you know, going through the motions of his daily quiet time, going through the motions of church, going through the motions of Bible study and being part of a Sunday school class or whatever it might have been, small groups around the dormitory. So even in all of his love to pursue an active and vibrant relationship with the Lord, there were still seasons of dryness, seasons of where he didn't feel that intimacy and that closeness. You know, as I look across our church and have over the past many months, I've kind of felt like, you know, maybe we're in one of these seasons, or have been in one of these seasons of just dry desert, going through the motions, you know. Things are good, not, no crisis on the horizon, um, but just feeling like, that fresh wind of the Holy Spirit moving through our hearts and moving through our church and seeing God at work, seeing nets get filled up and boats and all that kind of stuff. You know, I just kind of think we're in one of the, we have been in one of those seasons. And so last June, I started praying. And I started asking the Lord, Lord, what is, what, what's the next season look like? How do we prepare for that? And so all through the summer, for 60 days, June through July, I just began praying and seeking after God and asking Him for His leading for our church, asking Him, Lord, uh, move us to a season of plenty. Move us to a season of great fruit. Move us to a season where Your Holy Spirit is stirring in our hearts in a fresh, new way. And so out of that came a little sermon series called Potential. And I said, okay, Lord, we'll, we'll do that for a couple of weeks. And then out of that, the Lord said, hey, look, why don't you all have a night of prayer? And so last week we had a night of prayer. And for the folks that were able to come and be a part, we felt that fresh wind of the Holy Spirit. 
stirring within us and seeing God at work in individuals' lives, seeing God help people become set free of some things, seeing some relationships be healed, praying prayers of sincerity, asking God for his leading, asking God for his move in our lives. And we saw that happen. And I shared with you last week, last Sunday morning, that I just felt like, you know what? God's leading us up to a time, leading us up to a season where he's ready to pour out his Holy Spirit upon this church in a fresh and powerful way. Isn't that exciting? I'm excited about it. You say, well, Gordon, that's really great news, but what's all this have to do with fishermen? (laughs) Well, let me tell you. You know, do you suppose that Simon and Andrew would have responded the way they responded to Jesus' call if Jesus had not performed that great miracle? If Jesus had not done something that was so compelling, that was so clearly the hand of God, something that just ignited them to say, wow, yeah, I'll follow you. Nothing else matters as much as, Lord, what you want to accomplish. And so, just the same, I think, I mean, I think, I think the guys would have laughed at Jesus. I mean, I'm sure it was a great sermon, but they were, again, they were reluctant to even go fishing after the sermon when he asked them to do that. But boy, when they saw God perform this great miracle, when they saw God show out in this tremendous way, they were 100% on board. And so, again, I think, this is me talking, I think this is me having prayed. This is me having fasted a lot and pursued God's voice in this. I think that God is leading us into a season as a church where he's going to pour out his spirit in a fresh and a vibrant way, where relationships are going to be healed, where people's physical bodies will be healed in ways that we cannot explain. You say, Gordon, are you a prophet? No, 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 I am not. I do not stand up here and thus saith the Lord. I am not that guy, and I will not be him. Um, but just trying to be obedient to where God is leading our church. Um, so how do we prepare for it? Before God works, before God shows out, how can you and I, what can we do to prepare for God's mighty movement in our church? got two things for you. You ready? You don't even have to write them down. It's two things. You can remember this, right? The first of them is, first thing I'd propose, is that we begin a time of fasting. Um, That is a time, a a season where we say, okay, Lord, we're going to put some creature comforts to the side for the sake of breaking our heart, for the sake of helping us to hear your voice more acutely, more intensely. Um, This may be no TV. This may be a food thing. This may be no chocolate. Can you imagine life without chocolate or coffee or Diet Coke? I mean, come on, Jesus. You're really stretching me here. Uh, This could be no Facebook. This could be no Instagram. And the season that the Lord seems to be leading me to is one that begins tomorrow morning. You say, that soon? That quick? Yeah. And running for seven days, 
to this time next Sunday morning. Can you do it? Are you up for it? Can you go without Diet Coke for a week? We'll get you an intravenous next week afterwards. I mean, we'll make it work out for you. Um, But again, uh, finding some way for you over the course of this next week, and you listen, I'm not going to, I'm not here to tell you what it is that God wants for you to fast from. You listen to the Holy Spirit today. You ask him and he will show you, he will put his finger exactly on what it is that he wants you to give up for the next seven days. And you ask him today. And tomorrow morning when you wake up, friends, you begin that time, that season of saying, Lord, I'm going to put away some of my creature comforts, some of the things that distract me. And I'm going to allow you, Lord, that through that, I'm going to tell you it's going to happen. The Lord's going to begin speaking to you. He's going to begin calling you to special prayer over the course of this coming week. He's going to change your prayer life. The Holy Spirit's going to begin stirring in your heart. He's going to begin moving in your family. He's going to begin coming in as a fresh wind and a fresh fire in your heart. And His Word, when you sit down to read it this week, is going to come alive with the promises of God. That's what's going to happen. And so that's my ask for you. Number one, how do we prepare for a movement of God? Number one, by entering into a season of fasting. For us, starts tomorrow morning runs for seven days to this time next week. Second thing that we can do to prepare for a mighty move of God is for us to pray for God to be glorified. For us to pray for God to be glorified. That is, we need to purify our heart of any false motive. We need to purify our intentions of why God should do what it is that God wants to do that it's not for our benefit. It's not so that God can make a name for us. It's not so that God can make a name for this church. It's not so that God can make a name for, so that we can be big shots in the world. This has nothing to do with you and I being put forward into the spotlight. But rather, all of this has to do with God being glorified. And so we need to pray, God, in this. Are y'all with me? Y'all with me? God, be glorified. You be exalted. You be lifted up. Let the people around this area know that there is a God in heaven who loves them and who wants to spend eternity with them. Let the focus fall on Jesus. Let the focus fall on God. Not on me, but on him. Again, God's not interested in making a name for us. He's interested in making a name for himself. This is why Jesus taught us to pray. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. This was part of the Sermon on the Mount. Folks said, we want to know how to pray. He said, here's how you pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Verse 9. Hallowed be thy What's that word hallowed mean? It means being revered. It means being respected. Jesus said, get down on your knees daily and ask that God's name Not just in my own life, not just in my family, but in this whole community. That God's name would be revered and would be respected. That it's the name of Jesus, friends. Because one day, every knee is going to bow, right? Philippians chapter 2. Every tongue is going to confess that he indeed is Lord. And friends, we can either be made to bow 
or we can make that choice now. And so that's what Jesus is teaching us to pray. Hallowed be thy name. Lord, may your name in this place be respected and be revered, not just amongst the believers, but amongst those in this whole community. And then he said, hey, look, also pray, thy will be done. Um, Friends, this is uh, Jesus again saying, or no, I'm sorry, he said, thy kingdom come. Got myself ahead of myself there a little bit. He said, thy kingdom come. In other words, praying that God's rulership and lordship would enter into the hearts of people. Yeah, God owns the dirt, but does he own the people who live on the dirt? I mean, you may have a rental house, people live in that house, but do you own the hearts of the people who live there? You may have the deed to the land, but does that mean the people who live there serve you? And so that's what Jesus is teaching us here. His his kingdom would come, that is God's reign and his rulership would enter into the hearts of people, that they would submit themselves to God. Not just recognize that God is to be revered and respected, but also that my life belongs to him. Jesus said earnestly, pray for that. Pray for that. And so that's what he's, he's teaching us here. <clears throat> Friends, God is jealous about being recognized. He deserves to be glorified. He deserves to get the credit. And further, he's the only person in all of the world who's capable of handling the credit. Friends, if I start getting the credit, my head's going to swell, right? I'm going to get off track. And so we want to pray, God, you be glorified because you and you alone are pure in motive. You and you alone are holy. You can handle all the worship. When we start worshiping one another or ourselves, friends, it throws everything off, but God can handle it. And so God says, you give me the glory. I can handle it. And So we want to pray as part of our preparing for God's movement that, friends, God is glorified. God is revered. God is respected. That God gets all the credit for whatever God chooses to do. So, friends, in your prayers this week, you ask God that he would be glorified, that he'd get the credit, that you don't want to touch it, but that through what happens, he would be lifted up. And, friends, if we'll pray like that, God will work. Okay, what do we learn today? We've shared with you our observation that God is at work here at Hebron. I see it. I anticipate it. I've shared with you that God's going to continue that work, and he's going to continue it in great fashion. And there's two things that we can do to prepare for it. Number one is for us to begin as a church, a season of fasting, beginning tomorrow morning, running through this time next week. You ask the Holy Spirit, God, what is it that you would have me to give up? And Lord, I'll do it. And you make him that vow. that God, I'm going to faithfully do what you're asking of me. And number two is for us to pray that God would get all the glory from what is done. I say, Gordon, I got one last question for you. Fire away. My question is, what if God doesn't move in a mighty way? I mean, aren't we all kind of over-expecting maybe a little bit? Isn't it possible that we're putting the cart before the horse? Isn't it possible that maybe we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment? We don't want God to look bad. So why would we say things like this? Why would we anticipate things like this? Well, friends, here's my response to that, and it's the same thing I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, that until God says that he won't heal somebody, until God tells me that he won't bring your dad or your son or your mom or your brother into the faith through a mighty move of the Holy Spirit convicting them of their sins, 
making them aware that they need Jesus in their life, friends, until he tells me that he won't do that, then I'm going to pray for it. I'm going to ask God for the moon, right? Until God tells me you can't have the moon, I'm going to keep asking him for it. And so, friends, my invitation to you is let's not put limits on what God can do or what God wants to do because we're worried that God might look bad because he doesn't do it. Let's ask him. Let's petition him. Jesus said, you ask anything in my name and I will do it. But friends, there's some faithfulness we need to have on our side. And that looks like a time of preparation for a mighty move of God among us. How can you prepare? Seven days of fasting. Praying for God to get all the glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you're not done with us. How sad it would be if you were. Might as well fold up shop and go home. But you're not. Lord, may we, may we take seriously that what your agenda is out-prioritizes our fishing exploits. That whatever your agenda is, it supersedes whatever else that we've got going. Lord, we ask that you would move in a mighty way. We know that you can, and we'll just keep asking, Lord, throughout this week. Holy Spirit, begin even in this moment, as we gather around this table to share these elements. Speak to our hearts. Reveal to us what you want this week to be. And Lord, break us. Put a hunger and a thirst in us to see you, O oh God, stirring and moving in our families, in our communities. God, we're not going to be able to just sit back in our lazy boy and watch you go to work. You want us to be a part of it. You want to draw us into it. And so, God, may we hear your voice this morning. May we be faithful and obedient through this week to pray these things. That your glory, your glory, oh God, would be what this is all about. All to you, Lord. Again, we pray, Lord, that you would instruct us in these moments, that you would reveal to us your will for our lives as we approach this week. We pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.